Last time. The sister of Mary Ellen Diener, the 14-year-old murdered by Lester Eubanks, made an impassioned plea to his family and to anyone who might have seen him over the years. She is no longer with us in the physical sense, but as long as her convicted murderer is free, her soul cannot be at rest. And a friend of Lester's father may have had an important clue to Lester's whereabouts on his living room wall. Holy smoke, they just got the painting. Think it'll yield anything? I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? Any search as old as the one for Lester Eubanks will almost certainly be hampered by faded memories, missing evidence, and key figures who have passed away. All of those factors have applied as the U.S. Marshals scoured the country for signs of Lester. But investigators do have some advantages in cases this old. Would modern forensics pick up clues that Lester couldn't have known he was leaving behind? Here's ABC News senior investigative reporter Matthew Mosk. There's a dusty box pulled from the evidence lockers at the police headquarters in Mansfield, Ohio, and in it sits the 32 caliber revolver that Lester Eubanks used to shoot Mary Ellen Diener on a pitch black night in 1965. There's the brick he used to crush her skull, still stained with her blood, and the clothes taken from her lifeless body. I was with Don Fryback, the forensic scientist for the Mansfield Police Department, in a noisy basement lab at police headquarters. She first began searching through the old evidence in 2016, looking for traces of Lester Eubanks' genetic material. I mean, with old cases, it can be a little trickier because 50 years ago, the evidence was handled differently than what we would handle evidence nowadays. Back then, police didn't wear gloves at the crime scene. Evidence may not have been bagged and sealed properly. These are court exhibits, so jurors could have handled them, um, bailiffs, prosecutors, defense attorneys. So a lot of these items had been handled, um, but some of the items did have blood on them, so hopefully those items would have been handled with gloves. As the hunt for Lester heated back up, Freibeck recognized the potential value of DNA to this search. More than once, Lester had been accused of trying to force himself on women in the 1960s. So there's reason to wonder if this criminal behavior may have continued after his escape. And if it did, samples of his genetic material may very well be sitting in a police evidence locker somewhere just waiting for a match. If we're able to generate Lester's DNA profile, then we'll be able to put it in the database and see if it hits any other samples uh, from multiple crimes across the country. But trying to pull DNA from evidence that was decades old, that was no easy task. As Freibeck looked through the surviving evidence, she weighed her options. There was no sign of Lester's blood or semen on the clothing that remained. Any skin cells on the brick would have long since dried up. She found hair samples, 
but none with the roots, which are packed with DNA, that she would need. There was some clothing from Lester Eubanks. So his um, military clothing, hat, boots, I believe, um, general like fatigue type clothing. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and I tested the hat. I asked her, what was it about the hat that jumped out at her? Well, hats are typically a type of item that we're going to get a DNA profile from. Again, talking about nowadays standards. So a hat is, you know, usually worn for an extended amount of time. If you're sweating, some of those, um, the sweat might help pull some of those skin cells off of your forehead and transfer to the hat. Freibeck swabbed the brim of the hat and gathered what she hoped would be usable DNA. The results emerged on a paper printout that looked like a chart or a graph. I say it looks a lot like an echocardiogram or, um, you know, if somebody's had like a contraction monitor on their belly while they're pregnant to watch those contractions, it's an instrument signal. So it's kind of chugging along at a baseline level. And then when that instrument detects a piece of DNA that we've labeled with fluorescent markers, it actually indicates a signal and will show a peak. And from that, we look at the instrument and look at those peaks, and then we end up printing it out, usually for our case file. I asked her if Lester's printout showed any sign of DNA, anything even close. No, flatline, nothing. Investigators were undeterred, and Dawn started thinking about other ways to find Lester's DNA. As police officials packed up the evidence of Lester's crime, it was hard not to be moved. The gun, the brick, and that fistful of dull nickels, the ones Mary Ellen was planning to use at the laundry and was still clutching when she died. It all harkened back to 1965. In the thick of this manhunt, it could be easy to see it all in clinical terms and forget what has driven this effort from the start. On one of my first trips to Mansfield, Ohio, my colleague Cindy Galley and I stopped at the Mansfield Cemetery to pay proper respect to the teenage victim, Mary Ellen Diener. The destination is on your left. Mansfield Cemetery Association Incorporated. The cemetery covers more than 70 acres, with thousands of markers, some dating back centuries. Using a map with Mary Ellen's burial location, we set out. The grounds were divided into grids. We were looking for section H5. We're going to pass the mausoleum. That's that thing, I think. Mm -hmm. And then as we go, as we approach... Over there, it's going to be, right? Yeah, as we approach H5... We tried to follow the landmarks on the map... As we approach H5, we're going to see a large black marker. But as hard as we searched, we saw no gravestone for Mary Ellen. We were baffled. We asked Pam Bouts, a cemetery manager, and she came out to look for herself. No marker had ever been placed there. She did not have a stone there at all. And um, just got to thinking, I guess, for 40-something years, you know, she's laid unmarked. And that, you know, her killer is still out there. And so it just kind of tugged at home. The most minimal thing I think I could do as a cemetery is just figure out how to mark her. Because I really, 
I mean, we believe that everybody should be marked, but we also understand that not everybody does. But this was actually an opportunity where, as the cemetery, we could help intervene with that. One person who has never forgotten about Mary Ellen is Mansfield Police Detective John Arcudi. He handled hundreds, maybe thousands of cases over his long career in law enforcement. He's comfortable in retirement now, but this is one case that he can't seem to stop thinking about. When we met up with him recently near his house, I noticed he had a thick binder with him. You've got your book with you. That's that's your file on Lester, right? Yeah. Can I ask you just why you held on to that? I mean, I can't imagine there are many cases that you kept a hold of the old files on. I, I don't know. There's something about this case that affects officers when they when they get involved with Lester Eubanks that uh Arcudi told me there were some investigators who had worked on this case who never stopped thinking about it, and others who refused to discuss it at all. He was thinking about a deputy sheriff who worked the case. Arcudi told us, don't bother calling him. You know, I told you about this case having an effect on people. He doesn't doesn't even want to discuss anything about uh, Lester Eubanks. He said... Doesn't want to hear that name anymore. Now, Arcudi is resting his hopes on Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler. I mean, does it feel like there's like something is out of place and it needs to be put back in place, and that's Lester? It would be great if if David Seiler can get him. Be fantastic, and if anybody can get him. David Seiler will get him. While there have been a long series of unfortunate twists and turns in this case, the case is not without hope. True, the police lab couldn't recover Lester's DNA from the evidence left behind at the crime scene, but the Mansfield crime lab scientist Don Freibeck was not out of ideas. So if we're able to um, build a solid family reference sample um, from somebody from Lester's lineage, then that might be a route. Ever since genealogy sites were used to identify the Golden State Killer in California, authorities have been looking for ways to exploit people's interest in their own family trees and access the DNA sent to companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Freiback wondered if some descendant of Lester's could have placed his or her own DNA into a database, simply out of curiosity. You know, if Lester's moved on with his life, uh, maybe he has other children in other states who maybe they're looking for their father. And so they're using these type of websites to try to locate, you know, their father who they don't know. So we might end up getting a match that way. Law enforcement is not permitted to use most of the commercial sites for investigations like this. But we were curious about that man who thought Lester was his father, the man who asked us not to use his name. Did he wonder if there were others like him, children of Lester's, looking for answers? 
We met up at a Cracker Barrel restaurant. He told me he wanted to find out. So out front, in two of the rocking chairs on the porch, we sat together and cracked open test kits, and he began to fill vials with swabs and saliva. Place the bag in the tube. When we return, would the DNA testing kits provide new clues? And the marshals learn more about that painting, the one Lester's father had arranged to be painted for a friend. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. I was in a remote spot in rural Pennsylvania. All around me, vibrant green mountains. I had pulled into a parking lot with Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler. In front of us, were low-slung cinderblock buildings surrounded by a double layer of fencing, topped with razor wire. Seiler and his partner were about to enter a federal prison complex to finally get some answers about a painting. We are in Allenwood, Pennsylvania. We are headed to a Bureau of Prisons facility um, to interview a gentleman who has a relationship or had a relationship with Moe's Eubanks, and we're hopefully um, we'll be able to develop some information from him. Um, and this is, we're going to call this guy the painter, right? This is the guy who who we, we identified from his painting and 
the bank's house. Correct. So hopefully, hopefully the painter will be able to develop, or at least provide us with a little bit of information that uh, could get us a step closer, a uh, step closer to Lester. Siler was now confident that it was this man, and not Lester, who was the artist behind the painting he had carried out of the home of the civil rights lawyer James Banks. The signature on the painting read, D. Hale. Working through the prison system, Siler had identified a man named Daniel Hale, who was now an inmate at the Allenwood Minimum Security Prison in rural Pennsylvania. It turned out Daniel Hale had been a caretaker for Lester's father, Mose Eubanks, in the years before he died. If the artwork came from this man and not from Lester, it probably wouldn't yield any physical clues to Lester's whereabouts. But Siler thought Daniel Hale could provide something just as valuable, a rare glimpse into the inner workings of the Eubanks family. After parking outside the perimeter fence, Siler and his partner unholstered their weapons and placed them in a gun safe in the back of their car. So we're uh, dropped all our gear, about to walk into prison. I think this is going to be a good interview. I think we got a good shot of gathering some good information. About 45 minutes later, Siler and I met up in a parking lot. He's very close to the family and had uh, intimate relationships with um, people within the family. And, um, you know, as we've learned throughout this investigation, it's very segregated. Uh, Mose was very secretive, and sometimes he didn't share you know, certain parts of his life with other people. Siler said Daniel clearly had a unique vantage point, spending long days with the Eubanks family patriarch near the end of his life. Siler sensed Daniel had real insights into Moe's and Moses' feelings for Lester. He was close to all of his children and was embarrassed. He was embarrassed for what occurred but Siler said Daniel remained guarded with what he would share. It was pretty apparent the jailhouse meeting had not gone as well as Siler wanted. It was, um, it was a tough interview. I wondered if we could learn more from the painter ourselves. So Alex Hosenball and I began reaching out to him, first with a letter, and then on a prison-approved email system. We waited eagerly for a response. The last time the marshals knew for sure where Lester Eubanks was living was in the 1990s. And that's right around the time Daniel Hale began to get close to Lester's father. But it was hard to tell. Was Daniel ever close enough to learn more? And if he did, would he feel a duty to remain silent? It took months but eventually he wrote back. At first his notes were restrained, and then a thick envelope arrived this fall. So today we got a letter from Daniel Hale from the Allenwood Correctional Facility. We'll see what he has to say. 
Okay, it's very long. He had been Daniel had begun to open up. In a six-page letter, he started to share his story. So on the first page, he's basically describing Mose as a good guy who was looking out for him. He revealed that his mother had been close to Mose for 50 years and that he spent more than a decade in close quarters with Mose inside the Eubanks family circle. And he was willing to talk to us. We began trying to arrange a call with Daniel, hoping he could lead us closer to Lester than ever before. As this new contact started to look more promising, our other new acquaintance, that man who suspected his mother had been raped by Lester, he was starting to hear back from the commercial labs that had analyzed his DNA. With the man's permission, I shared his results with an expert who knew how to dig for clues in genetic data. Her name is Cece Moore, and she's an ABC News contributor who works in a new field called investigative genealogy. I reached her in California. It's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack, but it's definitely worth trying it because his children and or grandchildren would likely not have any idea about his past. And so it's very possible they might test at one of the consumer DNA testing companies, you know, not realizing that that could potentially lead to his identification. A few weeks later, she called me. So obviously I'm dying to know, um, what did you find in there? Was there anything useful at all? Well, yes and no. It's not going to lead us to Lester immediately, unfortunately. But I can definitely confirm that the person's DNA that you tested is indeed the son of Lester Eubanks. So if there was any doubt about that, that is dispelled. Among the close matches she found, Clarence Eubanks, Lester's brother. One of the companies identified him as the man's uncle. And she found two other more distant matches. One of them does trace back to the Eubanks family, so it again reconfirms that you are indeed testing a child of Lester's. And that, she said, is a very promising development. What that means for us is that this DNA is very valuable for fishing in these databases. New matches come in every day across the four databases that you have as DNA in. That means at any time, any day, a new match could pop up that could help lead to Lester or at least lead to some more information about where he's been all of these years. They are constantly updated, and there are many, many people testing across the country or even across the world every day that are getting these kids, spitting in that tube and mailing it into the companies. When I started looking at this case, I thought DNA could hold the key to finding Lester. I had read all the stories about the Golden State Killer, the serial murderer who hid in plain sight for years, only to be tracked down when a relative entered their DNA into a commercial genealogy site. But for us, it was clear that DNA wasn't going to deliver that aha moment. Yes, the genetic profile of Lester's son could be useful, but only if someone else stepped forward, 
Someone, perhaps, who was fathered by a drifter, a man who popped into their life and then disappeared. I was just thinking, and I'm a little curious about this, if somebody is listening to this story, hearing this podcast, and they think that their grandfather or their father or their uncle who was in their life looks a lot like Lester Eubanks, and that person has moved on and is not part of their life anymore, what can they do to get that answer? Well, they can order a DNA test from any of the consumer DNA testing companies. You have this uh, DNA phishing in there, and all four of them. And if they do that, it will come up as a match. I was even more surprised to discover, just in the past few weeks, that DNA also has limitations for the U.S. Marshals. Seiler did not share with me the work he's doing with DNA, but I assumed that he would, right away, try and match samples from Lester's son to those sitting right now in a nationwide database of evidence from unsolved rape and murder cases. But I began speaking with experts about how this would work and discovered there are strict laws surrounding DNA unbending rules that actually forbid authorities from entering the DNA of a criminal's relative into the national database to try and solve a crime. As legal experts explained it to me, these are complicated questions with legitimate privacy concerns at play. But for Lester, it was all starting to look like one more lucky break. Still, with or without his DNA... Lester Eubanks' son had already helped the investigation in another important way. Seiler added his photo to a stack of family pictures he had gathered, and this fall, he submitted them to a forensic artist from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The center's artists are known for their remarkable ability to take photos of infants or toddlers who had gone missing and project what they would look like years, even decades later. They took this on as a special project for the Marshals. The artist in charge of updating Lester's photo was Paloma Galsey. She relied on old photos of Lester, and recent ones of relatives, as guideposts for an age progression that could give people an idea of what Lester looks like today. So he looks a lot like his dad from the pictures that I've got. And he's got like this huge, massive chin um, that is very interesting to reproduce and to make sure that it's on the image. It would take her about eight hours. As she worked, I asked her what she was thinking. It's stressful. (laughs) It's stressful for me because I'm hoping I'm going to do a good job. (laughs) I was like, all right. The result is what led to the image on the cover of this podcast, and you can see how she made it in a video on our website. Really, it looks like a photograph. Lester today. The image would become the centerpiece of the manhunt, and within hours, it was on wanted posters nationwide. When the U.S. Marshals first began this manhunt, It had been more than two decades since the last known sighting of Lester Eubanks. But the marshals would soon be in a better position than ever 
to start closing that gap considerably. This became clear on a recent afternoon when I answered a call from Allenwood Federal Prison. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from... Daniel Hale. An inmate at a federal prison. It was the painter, Daniel Hale, the man whose artwork we had seen on the living room wall of the civil rights lawyer and minister, James Banks. Daniel was in the middle of serving a 36-month sentence on a weapons charge. Um, Before we start, I just wondered if you could describe where you are right now, what it looks like from where you're, I don't know if you're seated or standing or... Oh, standing at a phone booth, and there's only like one during the work hours that works for mm, 150 guys. So what do you see from from the phone booth? Mm, Let's see, a card room, a TV room, let's see, people over on computers... Um, I can see other buildings and through the bars, you know, obviously. Daniel was being held in a minimum security facility, but perhaps a sign of how much has changed since the days when Lester Eubanks took that shopping trip. Daniel had been delayed in talking with us because the corrections officers were conducting another inmate count. They have every couple few hours here. There are sticklers about counting people. I asked Daniel about that painting, the one that brought us to him in the first place. Do you remember how that all came about? Um, yeah, actually, it was uh, Moe Eubanks, the reverend there, that uh, commissioned the, the painting. He, for some reason, uh, he said it was their anniversary, so he wanted it done uh, for them. And, uh, you know, I spent a, maybe a month or something on it, and then uh, he you know, presented it to them at the at Sunday church one day. Most members of the Eubanks family that we reached over the course of reporting this story remain deeply guarded. They would not talk about Lester. But both Daniel and he told us his mother had gained the trust of the family. Daniel was with Mose constantly in the last decade of his life. I wondered if Moe's ever put paintings by Lester on display in his home. Oh, he absolutely did. Lester's name was on it. He had two of them in that living room. They were both some sort of religious motif. I don't know if he did them on a prison. He said it was his mother who first heard Moe's open up about Lester. She said he let the cat out of the bag. He said his mother knew Moe's was not only communicating with Lester but was helping support him financially. Do you think that, that Mose turned to her for some help in how to move money to Lester, or she just picked up on the fact that he was doing that? No, she said for a fact he was doing it. He described how he used to bring Mose to a bank in central Mansfield and told us he suspected Mose was somehow sending money to his son, though he could never be sure. That was surprising enough. But then Daniel told us Mose attended a 2011 Eubanks family reunion, and Lester was there. He had gotten to see his son after so many years, and uh, when he went down to uh, the reunion, like I say, then I saw him like a day or two after he got back and noticed he was wearing some 
t-shirt. He never wore just a t-shirt. He told me it was a gray t-shirt with a white emblem on the front, and it said, Eubanks University. They were giving them out at the reunion, and you know, my kids had them made, and blah, blah, blah. How interesting. And so what was it that uh, that led you all to believe that Lester might have been there? Mose said that he got to see his son that day, the day of the reunion. I don't know if it was at the reunion, but she said the day of the reunion, south of Ohio. Oh, I see. And so he had traveled somewhere out of town. Uh, did you think it was in Ohio or maybe in Kentucky? No, they said south of Ohio, so I just wasn't sure. I know he didn't really drive himself long distances, and he went by himself, so I don't think it was real far south because he wasn't gone. He wasn't gone that long. Daniel believes that was not the only time Lester came back. There were indications Lester had returned the following year to attend a small family gathering around the time Mose died. Daniel never saw Lester, but said the family met in private, and on the door they placed a sign. It said, Taking No Visitors Today. I wondered what all this meant about Lester's whereabouts today. If you if you had to guess, do you think Lester is still living out somewhere in, in the U.S., still free? Yes, I believe he is. At least the last I had known back in, you know, when the river passed. Um, I, yeah, I mean, he's definitely out in the U.S., but it's in the eastern side of the U.S. and probably a little bit south of Ohio because he, yeah, he told his kids not to you know, not to have him come into Ohio. Do you think that anybody in his family would ever turn Lester in? I'll bet you if there was $100,000 on the table, I could bring him in. If he hasn't passed in the last, you know, six, eight years or so, then he's definitely still in the state. After all those years spent with Mose, Daniel said he was clear about one thing. Right or wrong... Mose instilled in his children a deep sense of loyalty to his one wayward son, Lester. I'm sure, yeah, Mose had a way of uh, trying to get people to, you know, believe his point of view or pressuring them into thinking certain ways, and I'm sure he did that with his daughter and son. And that way, of, and that way of thinking would be would be what? What is Moses thinking on all that? Well, that it's, it's family and that you protect family. These are the small steps forward in an investigation that is grinding ahead. Deputy Marshal Seiler is painfully aware that the man he's trying to find is in his mid-70s now, and the window for him to make an arrest will not stay open forever. There have been moments shadowing him on this manhunt, where I've seen signs of that pressure. On one outing, Seiler had hopes that a distant relative of Lester's would have new information, but she had unexpectedly left town. I watched him return to his car with a grimace on his face. We just didn't get a chance to meet the one person we came to talk to. 
which is the story of my life. It's the story of our life, man. Strike out. Damn it. But Siler does not hold on to that frustration for long. Here's what he told me after he knocked on another series of doors, all dead ends. It just takes the energy and the, <laughs> the energy to drive, which all my friends say, yeah, he's got plenty of energy. Yeah. <laughs> you have that never quit mindset. If you don't have that never quit mindset, you're never gonna, like this job is just too hard. And you see, we're just trying to contact three simple people. Just didn't work out today. So we'll start back tomorrow. As painful as it can be to hit a series of roadblocks, Siler told me he's content to keep hunting. It's my niche. Um, it takes someone, you know, whether um, the ability to focus for a long period of time to, to take in a lot of information and spew it out. Um, but I love it. It's like to catch those who are uncatchable. It's kind of a challenge. This guy's uncatchable. Okay, is, that's the challenge that I face every day. And every day I come in and I know I'm going to fail. You know, every day you're going to face failure. Every day that I come to work, the chances of me catching this guy who's been on the run for this long are very slim. But that's, a, that's what I'm willing to fight. And I'm thankful that my boss allows me to do that because we have struck gold a couple of times with some really, really old cases. The passion to solve this case has been contagious inside the U.S. Marshals Service. This has been evident since the day I first got a call from Siler's boss, U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott. He wanted Lester's story to reach a wide national audience. He told me this was one of the toughest manhunts his office has ever undertaken. He follows every development and feels every moment of the case personally. Well, success has gone from failure to failure with great enthusiasm, right? So even though uh, we have not got him uh, in a while, obviously, uh, since we started working this investigation, we are going to get him. We are optimistic we are going to get him. we got the best investigators in the world on this. I am 100% confident that we are going to find Lester Eubanks and we are going to bring him into custody. And he told me, that's where the public comes in. He wants to know if you have seen this man. More than likely, you know, Lester Eubanks is going by a different name. He's in a different part of the country, in a different area. He may, he may be blended in somewhere as your next-door neighbor. Um, look for the little things that could add up. Look for those little things that is, you know, may cause you to be a little skeptical about the person living right next to you. Myrtle Carter says... She is always on the lookout for Lester. While she doesn't spend a lot of time ruminating about this case, she says she and Mary Ellen will only truly have peace with Lester back in handcuffs. Pam Bouts from the cemetery had been hard at work arranging for Mary Ellen to finally be properly remembered. It was the least the Mansfield community could do for a family so badly let down when Lester Eubanks was allowed to walk free. 
her family can know that forever anybody can find her, that she is marked. Her life was not, um, it was not unmarked, I guess. You know, she made a mark on this earth. On a cool spring day, we watched from the fence line as Myrtle Carter came to the cemetery to see the stone for the first time. She looked stoic and stood silently, staring down at the new marker for her sister. Later, we spoke with her by phone about that somber moment. You know, all the, I don't pull up all that emotions and stuff. I don't allow it to come up because I can't live in that moment. So I don't, you know, get uh, allow sorrow and uh, all that to even visit me. Myrtle's thinking has not changed since she wrote that letter to the local paper so many years ago. As long as her convicted murderer is free, her soul cannot be at rest. Pam had asked Myrtle what message should be etched into the gravestone. Her response said everything. Next to the image of an angel, it reads, Gone too soon. We hope this will not be the end of this story. If you know anything that could help the U.S. Marshals catch Lester Eubanks, call them at their hotline, 1-866-4WANTED, and let them know if you have seen this man. Thank you for listening. photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believe he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Mosk. Additional reporting by producer Alex Hosenball and associate producer Jin Sol Jung. Production by Susie Liu. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Dashishku. Cindy Galley is our chief of investigative projects. Chris Vlasto is senior executive producer. I'm Sunny Hostin. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback Series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.